back, everyone, to the Yacht Rock Podcast out of the main. Uh, this is your captain, Tom, speaking, and I am joined today by two illustrious gentlemen. Well, <laughs> one illustrious gentleman, and then by co- my co-host, John. How you doing? Uh, after that, I'm not so sure. Yes. Well, I know we have a gentleman on the call for the first time because he's from the South. Yes, we'll right. get to him in just one second. Um, I was thinking the other day, you know, when we started this podcast at every moment since the uh, like the pure joy is when either you discover something or a friend discovers something and sends it to you. Right. And I don't know when this was months ago now, probably maybe you'll remember is I got a text from you and you said, have you checked this out? <laughs> and it was Starbuck. Yeah. The, the lost masters. The lost masters. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I think Starbuck. Let me check it out. And I play the first song. I'm like, ooh, that's a keeper. Goes in, going to my Yacht Rock playlist. Yeah. Second song comes up. Ooh, that's a keeper. That's going <laughs> to my Yacht I don't think I stopped saying that until uh, he was singing a love song at the very end. And I, every track on the whole thing went in my Yacht Rock playlist. So that was one of my more pleasant discoveries. Uh, and uh, You're welcome. Yes. I'm sure. I, hopefully, I repaid the favor to you mm-hmm. or will. But – the uh, the other pleasure we get is when we actually get to talk to these people in real life. So That's the whole reason we do it. So without further ado, let's invite the Southern gentleman himself, the lead singer, founding member of Starbuck, Mr. Bruce Blackman. Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Hey, happy to be here. I'm not so sure about that Southern gentleman stuff. <laughs> well, I could hear Southern, so <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm I'm not Southern. I'm from way ass down south. Ah, <laughs> there you go. There is a difference. Yeah. Yes, we know. <laughs> well, Bruce, this is a pleasure to have you. Um, we want to cover a lot of ground today, and just uh, I guess by way of kicking things off, obviously, much of the world knows you as the the talent and the voice behind this song. Moonlight. But uh, as I was telling John before we officially invited you onto the podcast, it's like there's so much more to the story and so much more to the catalog that I'm hoping you'll indulge us as we kind of explore a little bit of it. Sure. Um, start starting with this Moonlight Feels Right uh, in the book that was inspired by it um, that you were gracious enough to send us the first chapter. And as soon as I finished the first chapter, I went to go order the entire book. It's great. It is called The Road to... Moonlight feels right, correct? That's right. And I love the way the book opens. I want to kind of have you retell the story, but just to set it up a little bit, because it, it takes place after the song's been written. But um, the book opens with a conversation between you and ELO's Jeff Lynn backstage at a show and then immediately jumps to two weeks prior, where it sounds to me like your career is on death's door. You, uh, your car's getting repoed. You don't have enough money to make rent. And then you get two serendipitous phone calls within a couple of weeks time. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Give us a little of that story. So you're sitting there uh, struggling to make ends meet. And I think the first call you got was from your manager about an ASCAP offer, correct? Yeah, that, that have, uh, I'm not sure that's the correct order. We, we got a call. We were working exactly a strip joint. But it was a strip joint during the day and a and a club at night. We were making fifty one dollars a week, and I got a call from a guy named Tony Ruffino, a, a concert promoter in Birmingham, Alabama, and he said uh, he he said, uh, "Would you guys like to open for ELO in Birmingham?" It was the the coming Friday, 
And he said, I'm sorry. He said, all I can offer you at this late date is $5,000, but you only have to play for 30 minutes. And I was making 51 bucks a week. We were just about to break up, and I thought, $5,000? My God, I can buy an aircraft carrier, you know. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so uh, we took that date, and and then in reference to – uh, our rent was due. We were getting evicted from our apartment. Our car had just been repossessed. I got a call from my attorney because uh, the Moonlight, uh, when we did the LO concert, Moonlight was actually number one in Birmingham. My attorney called me and he said, Bruce, do you need any money? <laughs> and I said, are you kidding? He said, well, look, uh, ASCAP's offered to, uh, if you'll sign with them, to give you an advance of $25,000 against your royalties. And I said, absolutely, you know, and he ended up fronting me the money and then got reimbursed from ASCAP. I went over to his office and picked up the money, and, and that saved us. We were able to get a car and, and not be kicked out of our apartment. Wow. <laughs> Incredible. So now you're feeling rich, right? You go and you go get a, a van for the band to get to the gigs, and <laughs> I think you bought yourself a car, and you and your wish either your girlfriend at the time and future wife uh, are just kind of like loving life for a little while, right? Oh, yeah. We bought our – We've been married seven years at that point, and and uh, we didn't. We got we bought our first vacuum cleaner, our first washer and dryer, our first dishwasher. I mean, we we've been just living like paupers, you know, a lot of weenies and beans. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that that would be the part that you took away from it, Tom. I could not stop salivating at uh, the gear list. He says, "Here, here was our gear list for the ELO show. You know, it, it starts. You know, what you'd expect: bass, guitar, drums. You know, bomb." Congos, congas, timbales, timpanis, clavinet, okay, Wurlitzer, Rhodes, and all of a sudden we got Arp String Ensemble, okay, Vibes, hmm, Marimba, of course, and six mini moogs. It's the six mini moogs that made me go, what? Yeah. <laughs> what a what a list. Yeah, we had to use six mini moogs because a mini moog is, is a, a poly, monophonic, meaning you can only play one note at right. a time. Well, that opening riff of Moonlight is is. Uh, six mini modes doing in four part harmony. That da 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 da. So it took six mini modes to play that part. That's why we had to have so many keyboards. So how many people did you have on stage at one time, or were some guys playing two at a time? Well, yeah, I played two at a time. Sometimes Sloan Hayes played two okay. at a time. Even Bo Wagner, uh, a Vibes Marimba player, uh, he he had, yeah. he had a mini mode as well. So we uh, you know we just in and out through through uh, whatever songs there were. Um, th- that's that's what we had to do to reproduce our recorded sound. Wow, you, you know I can't help but to think though that um, Jeff Lynne's sitting there looking at it, and because it wasn't that many years later that Jeff Lynne took ELO into a very synthesizer direction. So I can't imagine, uh, you know, maybe you uh, influenced him a little bit. You think? Uh, who knows? I don't know. I was just, I mean, I was like a little kid sitting there with him. I mean, he was God to me. Yeah, you know, me too. Because I was a big fan of ELO. Yeah, and uh, they used. Uh, the only keyboard they had, they had a guy off stage with a Mellotron. Yeah, and he was playing a lot of the. They had the, uh, you know, you, you you press the keys and it had a tape loop, well, not a loop, just a giant tape that would play the those mm-hmm. background strings and stuff like that. But he was super impressed with all the all the keyboards and stuff. And he he had heard Moonlight, but he didn't know it was us. Oh, really? Oh, wow. He was a really super nice guy. I, I totally enjoyed. I mean, I was scared literally out of my mind. You know, from go from a strip club to <laughs> I don't know how many people there, ten, fifteen thousand people, more than I'd ever seen in one place. And didn't you end up playing it twice? Yes, we did. 
<laughs> yeah, we we played it, the opening song, and then we had to play it again at the end because his manager signaled to me that we could do it. Which is unusual. Wow. A lot of shows you play, there's a thing called the rock and roll pecking order. And if you're the opening act, a lot of bands didn't want you to do well. Right. And they would mess with the sound, make you sound bad, or cut you off, stuff like that. Certainly not do an encore. That happened a lot to us when we played with Southern rock bands like Marshall Tucker. We even played a show with... Um, no, what uh, I can't think of the name of the band like Black Oak, Arkansas. Ozark Mountain uh, Daredevils. It, we, we shouldn't have been together, but uh, those promoters aren't always that smart. <laughs> yeah. Well, they figured you were from the South. You were going to come and play blues rock. Little did they know you're bringing six minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we didn't. We didn't fit. That's when when we trying to get a deal with Moonlight. Every major company, every major label in America turned us down. For one of two reasons, sometimes both. They'll say, this is nuts. It's not Southern rock, and it's not disco. Well, mm. you know, somebody tell me something I didn't know. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but, you know, two years later, they're burning disco records. Yeah, right. right. Exactly. Well, yeah. John, it's funny that you noticed what I took away, which was different than what you took away. And, um, yeah. you know, Bruce, the closest – I was in a, a traveling band, too, back in the 90s trying to make it big. And the, the closest we ever got was um, – to stardom was almost getting evicted and having our car repoed. So we got that far. <laughs> go. We couldn't get over the hump. Yeah. But so it must have been a hell of a feeling uh, to not only get to play that song in front of thousands of adoring fans who already knew it, and then to be cued for an encore and then to get played again. And that's how that first chapter ends. It's just to me, what I took away from it is that feeling of exhilaration. You look over at your wife. I think she's standing by the soundboard and she says the words. Way to go, Bruce. Way to go, Bruce. Yeah. What a feeling. That's awesome. You see the sun come up on Sunday morning and watch it fade the moon away. I guess you know I'm giving you a warning. Fill us in so that what happens, uh, you know, obviously you don't need to read the entire book, but just give us a snapshot in time of what happens in the book going forward in, in your career going forward. Because you mentioned some of the bands that you toured with, what Casey and the Sunshine Band is another one, Hall and Oates, England Dan and John Ford Coley, Boston. So you go on to have this great career. Is that where the book then takes the reader after chapter one? Well, after that, I ended the first chapter with uh, uh, with the. Uh, story that began two decades earlier in a small town in Mississippi. And then I take you through uh, the first half of the book after that opening chapter is all about growing up in Mississippi, the characters I knew, the in musical influences, yada, yada, yada. A lot of them are pretty humorous, and there's some unbelievable characters in there, too, with unbelievable language. But then the second half of the book is all about uh, – touring and, and the TV shows we did. At a, we went to the opening of uh, Rocky in, in L.A. with uh, Dinah Shore, Lee Majors, and Farrah Fawcett. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, you know, we just got, a, got to meet a lot of interesting people. Uh, the guy on, on TV, the guy I liked the most was Merv Griffin. Oh, yeah. Because Merv was, man, he was cool. God. And uh, after, we, after we did the show, he walked over to the piano. He said, Bruce, come here. And he sat down. Merv Griffith can play the snot out of a piano. Really? And he started showing me. He said, he said, you know the song Fever? And I said, yeah. And he said, look at this. And he started playing Fever. And he said, it's almost the same chord structure as Moonlight Feels Right. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I thought, that was, I thought that was cool, you know, that he had 
gone back that far and correlated with, uh, with Moonlight with a song that old. Wow. Yeah, and Bruce, you know, you mentioned the chord structure. That's one of the things that I fell in love with going back to what I, I said at the outset of the episode is, so John, my co-host here and brother, sends me a link to this Lost Masters uh, release from, I don't know, 2016 or 2017 or so. And what I'm immediately struck by is I hear elements of Moonlight Feels Right, but the parts that I didn't expect that would continue throughout your entire catalog are sort of these jazzy chord progressions meet yep. sort of this bluesy Nolens type thing. It's, it's a really interesting writing style. So first tell us about what is the lost masters? How did that come to be? And are these all just remasters or are there some remixes? What is that project? No, they're not remixes. They're, they're the actual mixes that well, our second album came out. It was called rock and roll rocket. And the first single was uh, Everybody Be Dancing, which went to number 38. Everybody be dancing, 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 half a night of week. Everybody be dancing, 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 half a night of week. And it would have moved higher. I was with Private Stock, a little label at that time. And uh, they had David Soul. And the station in San Diego called them and said, they said, oh, look, we, we had one of these records. We had Moonlight Field, uh, Everybody Be Dancing, or the David, Don't Get Stuck on You, David So. And Larry Udall, the president of the company, said, uh, go with David So. Because David So was in a big hit TV show then. So we didn't get that last P1 ad, so that's as far as we went as number 38. But anyway, uh, like four months after that, the record company goes out of business. Larry Udall just disappeared. He had Blondie and Rupert Holmes and got a ton of people. He, he just literally went away. So that album essentially didn't exist. Wow. However, in my contract with them, I, we had done a, 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 a master lease deal. So I own the sound recording masters. And I just decided I would uh, go ahead and release it, you know, just to get it out there because most people don't even know that music exists. Yeah, well, you know, we um, being obviously a yacht rock podcast, and that th that's the perspective that we come from. And I have all three of the, the the first three albums of yours on vinyl, and they're very. There's a lot of mix in there. There's some very smooth stuff. There's some little more rock and stuff. But the stuff that you assembled for that Lost Masters, for those that haven't checked it out, it's chock full of stuff that would probably be either considered Yacht Rock or right on the edge of Yacht Rock. It's all the nice, smoothest stuff. There's some wonderful guitar solos in there, the synth work, but the chords, like Tom said, harmonies, everything that, that we absolutely love. I mean, it was a, I, I really applaud the choice of tracks on that now that I've had a chance to actually dig into all the albums as well. So, Well, thank you. Is yeah. there um, jazz influence in your writing, Bruce, or to what do we owe? The, oh, yeah, when I was uh, growing up, one of my favorite artists was Dave Brubeck. Oh my gosh, yeah, us too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to this day, I can play. I, I can play take five with my butt cheeks. <laughs> How many butt cheeks does it take to play Blue Rondo All the Turf? <laughs> Two. <laughs> <laughs> Well, nobody in my house likes the songs that I play with my butt cheeks, but um, that's another right. story. They so, stink. Um, <laughs> and then and as a lyricist, um, I don't know if this is going to come out as a question or just a compliment, but you you are 
as someone who heard Moonlight Feels Right might expect, you're something of a like a quipster, a, a punster, and the fact that you're writing a book to me indicates that you like to write. Is the is the art of lyricism like something that you hold dear, or is it just you happen to be good at it? Uh, no, I I, uh, I wrote my first song when I was in fourth grade, hmm. and I've been writing that long, so that's like sixty over sixty years now. I really studied the craft. Of I've always been interested in, in writing. Uh, English was the only good subject I, I had in high school. Same. Um, but I, I always like to, I, I usually start with what I call a stopper line. Mm. There's, you know, a line that just stops you. It, it, like Southern Bells or Hell at Night, yada, yada. Um, I really work hard at that because, you know, 99% of the songs that are hits are either to a girl or about a girl. <laughs> So I, I'm trying to, you know, you know, basically saying the same thing that's been said 14 million times, but I always try to do it in a different way, using language, words, rhymes, stopper lines, images, especially that. I, I like for you, if if I do it right, and I don't, it doesn't always come out that way, but I want you to see the lyrics rather than hear them. Mm. I want you on my shoulder, seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and feeling what I feel. Wow. Yeah, painting that that picture. It absolutely does. That's it. Just, I'm not painting the picture and seeing it. This is just an amazing coincidence. So uh, Moonlight Feels Right was written, like you said, about and to uh, a woman who now is still your wife to this day, correct? Yes. And we watched an interview that you did where you kind of walked the, the interviewer through the entire process of the lyrics to that. And you get to a point where you mentioned the French connection. And I always wondered, <laughs> is he talking about the movie? And it turns out you are, right? Yes. When I was writing the song, it was about when I was in college and I saw this girl that was just stunningly gorgeous. And I asked her out twice. She said <laughs> no, rather definitively, <laughs> the first two times. She was dating this big-time football player from Ole Miss, which is why the Ole Miss reference is in the song. Uh, But the third time I asked her out, she said, yes, we were going to a pep rally, and we were coming back, and the wind was blowing. And I walked up behind her, I asked her out again, she said, yes. So the night that I was writing Moonlight Feels Right, my first line was, the wind blew some luck in my direction. And I was thinking, Mm -hmm. that's when she said yes. I looked up, and I had the sound off on the TV, and the French Connection was playing. Hmm. And I immediately said, I finally made a tricky French connection to me, meaning that as it was difficult for Gene Hackman to make the French connection in the movie, it was difficult for me to get a date with this girl. Right. So, right. John, I'll let you have the next question. But so I'm sitting there this weekend. I had the house to myself. Uh, what, of course, am I going to do? I'm going to listen to a bunch of Starbuck and Bruce Blackman stuff. Right? You're going to say, watch the French Well, I had connection. the TV on and I had the sound down and oh. I flipped through it and you would not believe what I saw. Bruce, I took a screen capture and said it to you. What was on TV as I was doing that? French Connection. Yes. No way. Yep. <laughs> and I said it to Bruce. I'm like, this, I mean, this is. Oh, my. serendipitous. Serendipitous. Yep. Well, I would like to go a little behind the curtain. Uh, I'm a studio guy, do a lot of recording, and so I love the studio process. And going back to that that same video, Tom and I both watched that interview you did with the uh, was it the professor of rock? Is that what his name is? Yeah, Tom? Yeah. Yeah. By? yeah. Uh I would like our audience that maybe have not seen that. I'd love them to hear the little story about your. I, I guess at this point, it's signature. Your signature laugh. In, uh, in Moonlight that I've heard in a couple other songs, but there's a nice story behind how that came to be. The moon will send you on your way. <laughs> Moonlight, 
Okay. We recorded a very famous studio called Studio One in Doraville, Georgia. It's just a suburb of Atlanta. It's the home of uh, uh, Leonard Skinner and the Atlanta Rhythm Section. Oh. So we were the redheaded stepchild. <laughs> so when we got to record, it would just be for a moment. So that particular day, we had three hours, nine to 12. So we recorded Moonlight Fields, right? Bo Wagner did a totally ad lib solo after I tried it on an organ and clavinet and didn't sound mm. good. And uh, uh, Ronnie Van Zant was sitting on the couch. The bat, we had 15 minutes left. And uh, the engineer, Rodney Mills, said, uh, well, Bill Lowry, that was my publisher, was going to get mad. He wanted us to finish this song today. We hadn't done vocals. And I said, well, I'll do them right now. He said, we can't use the vocal booth because the band's tearing down. I said, well, just plug me into the board, and I'll sing it right here. And he said, nobody's ever done that. And I said, well, they have now. <laughs> so he plugged me directly into the board, and I had a Sure 57 on the stand in between my legs. He hit. I put on some headphones. He hit play, and we, I started singing. Well, the left side of my headphone was all static, and the right side didn't work. <laughs> oh, but I just kept going. I don't know why. I just, I just kept going. sounded horrible. It sounded so bad to me. At the end of the first verse, I did that little chuckle. Yeah. I was laughing at myself. <laughs> well, when the record company heard it, they liked to the laugh so much, they made me go back in the studio and dub in the laugh on the second and third verse. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> I, you know what's so funny is you know you it. sing along to songs on the radio. I do laugh along to the laugh <laughs> when it gets there. Oh, you got to <laughs> right, <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yep. It's iconic, man. Well, we, going back to the Lost Masters, there's one song on there that you you talk about lyrics. So I need one explained to me if it can be done uh, reasonably easily. What in the heck does the full Cleveland mean? I put the full Cleveland on. Full Cleveland is an old Southern term. Put oh. the full Cleveland on tonight. A little wine, a little candlelight just for you. It's an old Southern term where you, you know, it's like uh, the KFC guy. You dress up in a white suit, and that was called pull, putting on the full Cleveland. It has nothing to do with the city of Cleveland. Uh, mm. Interesting, <laughs> but you know, it turned out a lot of people didn't know didn't know that. I just assumed being from the South that everybody knew that. That That's record excellent. did well in the South, but it did, but it didn't go outside of there because without that, without knowing that, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I, it didn't matter to me. I love that right? song. It didn't matter that I didn't know what it meant. So, but love it. I'll be spiffy in my Southern white. Da da da. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Which you often are. It's a, kind of a signature look. Um, so I was curious. It's not many rock bands that are co-founded by uh, a player of mini Moog and a marimba player. I was curious. <laughs> um, did you, I, I know Bo Wagner passed away, I think in 2017. Did you, did you guys stay relatively close over the years? Oh Lord. Yes. Bo, the way I met Bo, uh, I, the previous, before Starbuck, I was, had a group called Eternity's Children. Uh, Google that and look at Mrs. Bluebird. That was my first national uh, song that made the Billboard charts, 1968. It only went in the 50s. It hit in the southeast and didn't go out of there. 
but Bo, uh, I left the band. We had crooked managers. We were starving. It was ridiculous. You know, we, we went out to L.A. I met Jim Morrison. We opened for the doors at the Whiskey. Wow. Our, uh, our manager was uh, uh, Kevin Deverich, who managed the animals. I got to meet Eric Burden. He found out I was from Mississippi, and he was nuts over blues. <laughs> and I can play all that blues stuff because I grew up on it. But uh, well, I left the group. Well, they hired Bo Wagner in my place and he was playing drums but Bo and Bo joined the group because he liked the songs they were recording and he thought his his uh, marimba and and vibes would fit well into that when he found out that I the guy who wrote the songs had left he quit he went up then he uh uh, joined up with uh Liberace he he was Liberace's musical director wow and so Bo, I don't know how he found me because this is way, way pre-internet, but he came to Atlanta with the Liberace show. And he, this guy calls me up, who I'd never even heard of before, and uh, invited me and my wife to, to see the Liberace show. And he said, you can come backstage and meet Liberace. Yeah, yeah, well, we weren't really that interested, but he, he was uh, pretty convincing. So we went and met Bo, met Liberace, and he talked about forming a band, and uh, we did. We, we put a band together just from ads in a local hippie newspaper called The Great Speckled Bird. Well, Bo had uh, been worked in the Gary Paxton studios out in L.A. He, Bo played on uh, all those uh, 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 association records, Along Comes Mary, yeah. Cherish. Mm-hmm. He played on Lewis and Clark, Buck Tongue. He toured with uh, uh, Fifth Dimension. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he'd, he'd been around. Yeah. But we uh, we put this band together. And Gary Paxton, in the meantime, had moved to Nashville. So Bo called Gary Paxton. We go up. We've been together like two weeks. We went up to Nashville and played the stuff for Gary, and we got a record deal with RCA. Ooh. But the RCA, the name of our group was Mississippi. RCA told us we had to change the name because they were about to sign a group from Australia named Mississippi. <laughs> So, so that I makes came up with the name Starbuck because I had just recently reread Moby Dick. And it's a character there, there on yep. Starbuck. I thought that was a cool name. Yep. And then it turns out the group from Australia named Mississippi changed their name to the Little River Band. Oh, oh twist oh, ending. Wow. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Wow. Yeah. What a storyteller. Yeah. Oh, I did not. See, this is why you got to go out and get the book. Yeah. Oh, he knows my gosh, how to spin great. a yarn. Um, yes. Which, by the way, you do offer still, I think, uh, signed copies of the book at your website. Is it BruceBlackman.com? Yeah, that, that's the only way you can get them uh, is it because my website because they get shipped direct. If, if, like, if you buy them from Amazon and you want it signed, you, you, Amazon ships it to you, then you got to ship it to me, then i got to ship it back to you. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Right, it costs right. more money than the damn book to do all of that. <laughs> well, I think I want to get my hands on a signed copy, so that's where I'm going. Uh, Bruce, BruceBlackman.com, correct? Yep. Well, speaking of Bruce Blackman himself, uh, again, I keep talking about these wonderful surprises that we come along, and I guess I would expect or wouldn't be surprised that you would remain active as a songwriter and a song producer and a you know performing artist. Uh, but I found all these late, you know, I say late, like 2016, 2017, um, your more recent releases. And again, John, you, I sent it to you. I'm like, this is really yeah. good stuff. Like there's no drop off. Well, the funny thing is I read somewhere, I don't know if it was Wikipedia or where it was, but that at one point early on, your vision for Moonlight Feels Right was sort of a bossa. And then in 2014, I guess you actually finally... We're able to bring that to fruition, right? Oh, 
when I first recorded the song, when I when I did make my little home demo, uh, I had a little ninety nine dollar drum machine had four beats on it. It had a, a a four four which didn't work, a three four which is a waltz no good, yeah, a, a march no good, and a bossa nova. So I punched yeah. the bossa nova beat and I just did basically just the clavinet da 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 and and did the song. Uh, and then uh, in twenty fourteen I thought I'm going to record that in the studio as a bossa nova. Because that was my original, that, that original demo is what got us the record deal in the first yeah. place. And it comes across so well like that. You know, you'd think it maybe would start to take on more of a, a caricature or a schmaltiness in the boss, but it's beautiful. It works wonderfully. It gives you a chance to thicken up the chords. It's really nice. Yeah, well, thanks. I, I enjoy doing that. So that album was Moonlight Feels Right 2014, and it's much right. more than just that Bossa Nova version. And then there's a 2017 release, Is That Your Yacht, which, of course, we love that title. Yes. And then uh, in 2018, Cowboys Cry 2. These are all really strong albums um, and mixed in with a couple singles, like the Walking in the Park single, Bruce. That That is a really yeah. good song. Really good song. Thank you. That that was also a true story. I was literally in the park. And this little girl came by in, in, on roller skates. Really? And I was just sitting there. I said, I'm going to write a damn song about sitting in the park. No other reason than this is what I see. That's it. Do you uh, carry like a notepad with you? Or does you just kind of commit some of this stuff to memory? Are you constantly writing down? I notes? carry a digital recorder with me at all yeah. times. Okay. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Yep. I'm probably writing something right now. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> called the Yacht Rock Podcast. Um, <laughs> I know of a couple good words or bad words that rhyme with Nixon, which is our last name. So, but stop. <laughs> All right. I'll let, I'll, I'll let Bruce workshop that. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. But I would encourage everyone to go check those out. You can get samples of them because you've made music videos on your website, which is kind of how I discovered all of this Bruce Blackman stuff. So it's just the Mm -hmm. onion, the more that you continue to peel, the more great stuff you find. So, um, what, what are you working on now musically? Is there a project in the works? Yeah. Right now I'm recording two albums. One is under my name is called at the Carlisle. And that's a combination of, uh, gentle uh, vocal ballads and piano instrumentals. But the other one I'm working on, which I'm almost done with, is a Starbuck, new Starbuck album. Hey, really? Right. So what makes it a Starbuck album that wouldn't be a Bruce Blackman album? Well, because that's what they were anyway. I mean, Starbuck was basically me and Bo. Yeah. The band, you know, we had hired people in and out, and and not being from here, it wasn't a problem finding good players, but it was a problem finding good personalities. Yeah. Oh, and we, right. we ended up hiring some people that were great players, but were completely out of their minds, you know. So uh, the, <laughs> what the, we music, did, yeah. I just I finally moved up to an 8-track studio, and I'd record the 8-track, uh, and I could, I could ping tracks and, and get as much as 14 tracks out of it. And then the band would just come in and learn learn it just the way I had done it, like the, just like they were learning a copy song. Do you have access to all those old uh, eight tracks? That might be an interesting release to hear some of the demo versions of some of these great songs. Oh yeah, I've got all of them. I got I got mm. tapes going back to the early '60s. Might want to get those resurrected and put that out. That would I bet you there'd be some uh, people interested. Well, in the only that. problem is it's about five thousand songs. I'm not sure if that wouldn't be what you call saturating the market. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like Prince's uh, vault, right? We'll have that's right, exactly. A little bit at a time. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's a reason I didn't go in the studio with a whole bunch of them. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, but, you got to write ten bad ones to get one good. That's one. right. That's that's right. Well, before uh, Bruce does saturate the market, make sure you get out and explore more of the Starbucks catalog beyond Moonlight Feels Right, which is of course a great tune. But there's so much more to discover, and then treat yourself to the Bruce Blackman catalog, uh, and go out and buy this book. Uh, get a signed copy. Uh, at bruceblackman.com. And uh, where else should we send people to learn more about you and what you're up to, Bruce? Well, uh, my Facebook page is probably the best place. And send me a friend request. I keep it open to people. And I really like making connections because of the music. Yeah. And I put, I put uh, stories and excerpts from the book and music and uh, no politics. Right. Just Good. keep it fun. Yeah, and you are <laughs> fairly active in the Facebook Yacht Rock group as well as uh, Yacht Rock Nation. So I, we see you there, and you do interact with folks. So uh, it's a cool friend to have. Uh, well, that's because Moonlight gets posted all, all the time. The time. Yeah. Love yeah. It's, 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 love that it's, song. They love that song. It's ridiculous. I mean, people even say – People even say that. They said, yeah, it, was, it hadn't been posted since yesterday. <laughs> well, how much more uh, have you seen in royalties and stuff over the last maybe five to ten years as Yacht Rock has sort of had this resurgence? Oh, absolute explosion. I have 1.3 million listeners on Spotify now. Yeah. Wow. I was going to ask you specifically. Was there a time, Bruce, that you like all of a sudden looked at some data and you said, wait a minute, I got a zombie on my hands. What's going on? Right. Was there a time where it just sort of took off and you saw the spins or the royalties or whatever it was that you said? Yeah. Yeah, it did. And it was because of, of social media, which I wasn't really into that much. But then, you know, one day I get a call from a from a book publisher. And they, they said, we want, we want to publish your book. And I said, I don't have a book. They said, oh, yes, you do. <laughs> We've been reading your stories on Facebook. That's right. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I ended up getting that, that deal that way. Uh, wow. But, yeah, it, it really it's just the synergy of all that stuff uh, has really worked right. quite well. I can't, so good to hear. Up, I can't even keep up with it, really. All right. Cool. Well, we'll check that out, Bruce. We really appreciate you coming on the show. This was fun. Hopefully uh, – you know, anytime there's an excuse to come back, like when you're releasing new material, please let us know and we'll have you back on. I will certainly do it, and I really enjoyed this. All right, thank you. Us too. Thanks, Bruce. All right. Well, I may have made a mistake just there. What's that? Well, we said goodbye to Bruce in a very gentlemanly way, thinking he was a Southern gentleman, but he, he corrected us. <laughs> he did. Said he's, he's from the deep-ass South or some such. Something like that. Something further South than the South. Yeah, so something even more southern drawlish than y'all, I guess. But oh well, is there something? All right, I don't know. I don't know. But I got to say that um, my spidey sense is tingling, or it has oh. been tingling. So, what I wanted to do was I, I was sort of reconstructing the timeline of. Um, yeah. You remember the beginning of the book opens with him uh, meeting Jeff Lynn backstage, and Jeff comments on the stage setup and the six uh, mini mogs and and all of that, and. I told you it got me thinking about how ELO got very synthy not long after that. So the Moonlight album came out December 31st of 1975, which is kind of odd. It's a New Year's Eve release. Yeah. Well, it is 75, so it's New Yachts Eve. Oh, that's um, right, because it starts in 76. That's right. Ooh, okay. <laughs> um, so the book says the meeting with Jeff was May 8th of 76 so they would have been touring uh, probably near the end of the tour of the uh, new world record album tour and their next album out of the blue they say it says that they started recording that in may of 76 so kind of right on the heels of this meeting and uh 
I would, I would assume that all of the prep and all the planning and all that for that album was already done. So it wasn't going to change much. But now we think, okay, did the seed get planted? Because the next album that ELO did is Discovery. It came out in 1979. And this album is where they're decidedly reducing the use of the orchestra by comparison and getting a lot more synthy. In fact, uh, I've read articles about how Jeff Lynne got infatuated with this synthesizer, this Yamaha CS80, which is this huge behemoth of a synthesizer, weighed like 200 pounds. Uh, it was like the most complicated, sophisticated thing at the time. But that was like the sound of that album. And so I thought, well, maybe that became Jeff's you know, own personal sort of version of the Minimoog. You never know. I mean, check this out. So, you know, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. You are saying. Yeah. Uh, right. Wow. Synthy. Very synthy. Yeah. Was I hearing real bass in there, though? Yeah. Yeah, for That's sure. That's always a sound to me when it gets really synthy, but you're still hearing the real bass, especially when it's a guy picking the bass. It just seems yeah. so, like, <laughs> I don't know, contradictory to me. So, but yeah. So, so who knows? That's my takeaway. It could have been the influence. Very good. Could have been. Yep. All right. Well, uh, I guess we should float this boat on into a lightning round. So um, I just I wanted to start and ask you something about the main hit that Starbuck is known for. Okay. Because I'm looking at the Yatsky scale, right? right? And there, as far as I could tell, there were three songs that were analyzed and rated by the fellas. Um, the highest ranking is Moonlight Feels Right. It's a okay. 52. Right. So 52. Um, and by the way, the lowest score was only a 48. So okay. pretty confidently above the Mendoza line, as you like to call it. Yeah, but hovering right nearby. Yep. And at 50.75 is A Fool in Line, which if you know the song, um, it has to have some extra points for the word fool. Yeah, that's, that's the 0.75. Well, <laughs> yeah. got it over the it top. It could be a full point. Yeah, and then right. uh, everybody be dancing at 47 mm-hmm. composite score. So my question to you is about Moonlight Feels Right. Do you think – now, it's, I've come to accept it as Yachty because it's in every Yacht Rock playlist. It's you know a staple on Sirius XM. Yeah. But the more we study the true sonic qualities of Yacht Rock, do you still – think it's yachty well let me answer the question with a question okay because i have an answer that okay all right well then maybe your your answer of my question will be the question that's unanswered that's i don't know it's an enigma wrapped in a riddle or something uh i have my notes in front of me for my float your boat section and i have written down moonlight question mark does it have any of the real elements though and that was going to be my question to you. So we're both going down the same canal here. What are, aside from the fact that we accept it as Yachty, and I'm not trying to talk you out of it, what elements, specific elements are in that song? Well, here was going to be my answer to my own question, which may also answer your question. I don't think there are any, but, but, but. I'm glad that it is considered Yachty. And I don't say that about much Yacht Rock. I just like that this song is in this whole universe. 
it, it might not otherwise be had maybe they not given it a 52. I don't know. It could have been dismissed as you know, overly kitschy or just because there's, I mean, I really not hearing the elements, I, you know, the groove, the, yep. I, I couldn't tell you what it is, but having said that, I'm sort of glad it's in there. Does it make any sense? That's my feeling. Exactly. No, that is entirely my feeling because there's a certain side of me that says, well, certain songs have a uniqueness about them that you can't categorize. And if they're from that era and all that stuff, maybe I give them five points. And then if they have a real special nostalgic character to them, I give them another five points. So maybe this is a 42 tack on the extra five tack on another five. Where we are at 52. Yeah. That's how All I would right, do there it. There you go. All <laughs> right. Well, yeah, it's funny. We both came at it the same way. Okay. Yeah. Well, then we overlapped on Float Your Boat. So we did. What do you have for a buried treasure? My buried treasure is going to be obviously a Starbucks tune. Uh, I think I've identified what I believe to be their most yachty, even though it has not been rated. And it comes from that uh, Lost Masters compilation that we talk so much about. The song is called It Feels Good. And I want to focus on. The fact that it's so unique because it has three distinct feels throughout it. So the, we've got the verse that starts off with a typical sort of syncopated groove with yachty, uh, palm mute sort of guitars. You make me feel good, you give me that sweet funny feeling. You make me float like a football. I got my head on the ceiling and I like thinking about you. You lift me up. Now we go to the pre-chorus. And we've got this disco influenced beat with a walking bass. And I know this time it feels so right. I think we got it made. And then we go to this driving, more straight ahead feel on the chorus. It feels good. Just the sophistication of the three different feels in the decidedly yachty verse. To me, this feels like their most yachty tune. <laughs> Uh, do you have access to my little notes in my computer here? I did get hacked on Facebook. Did I get hacked here as well? Because <laughs> my buried treasure is none other than it feels good. Well, I bet I know what your off the map is then too, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted you to play the guitar solo because okay. it's the super jazzy, like acoustic clean guitar solo. Okay. Yeah. We're going to talk guitar solos and buried treasures, though. Then I had a little side note here. Easing back. As long as we're staying in the, because that was going to be my backup. So I'm going to go to another one off the Lost Masters, okay. which is obviously the buried treasure in this whole thing, is this whole Lost Masters thing. But I'm going to add real quick coldest night of the year. Rhapsodies of cravings, chill me to the bone. Baking in that steamed up cup, just you and me alone on the coldest night of the year. <laughs> All right. Okay. 
Wow. So that gives everyone a taste for what they're missing if they haven't explored that full catalog. Big time, yes, yeah. So I guess what I should probably do is let you go first on Off the Map then, right? I think it's going to be close, but I bet it's going to be No Cigar because I just changed it like five minutes ago. All right. So we'll see if that was a preemptive strike or not. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, and I changed it from another song that I still don't think you were going to use, but I was okay. going to pick off that Moonlight Feels Right album from 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to pick Doing Nothing, and then I came across, and that's a good song, So, but I'm going to get, again, we're going to stuff this uh, ballot box here with nothing but Starbuck and Bruce Blackman. <laughs> But instead, I found this other one that I think I'm going to submit instead because it's more modern sounding. So it's further off the map sonically. But I think it shows how Bruce, even in the year 2016, is still innovating and still experimenting and still writing good music. Think back to how I uh, complimented his songwriting with the jazzy chord progressions. Right. And see if you hear that in Walking in the Park. Yeah, that was the one he said he wrote it as he was sitting there, sort of uh, exactly. a write what you see kind of thing. Yeah, I just love that he blends sort of this real techie sounding drum machine stuff with some yep. natural instruments. And I think what sounds to me like a real horn section and not a synth horn section. So yep. it's re- I just I really enjoyed getting into the Bruce Blackman stuff aside from the Starbucks stuff because it opened my door to how creative he still is. So. Yeah, I did the same thing, and I can't believe that uh, we did not overlap on this one because I would say it would be an oversight, uh, darn near bordering on negligence, if somewhere (laughs) in this lightning round, particularly in the off the map, how do we not feature this song? Is that your yacht? I only didn't because it's two Trojan horse, right? I Well, yeah, but it's off the map. I mean, his stuff is just so easy to listen to, though. It, it, what gets me is that everything he does has a certain amount of quirkiness to it, or if you want to say kitsch, that is so hard to do and not cross over to the point of sounding like a comedy band. Right. You know, it's and, and to have longevity doing it because it, it's something that uh, it can take on a caricature of itself. He, he's working in such a difficult area. And I just, you know, give absolute kudos to that. You know, I think of like uh, a band like Bare Naked Ladies that I thought they were mm. so cool at first. And by the time they were saying, I made you say underwear, like they <laughs> completely jumped the shark. And I felt like they became nothing but a caricature of themselves. Oh, we have to come up with clever, silly rhymes because that's what our audience expects. And it just went wah-wah for me. But what they did early on is what I think uh, Bruce has maintained uh, doing, which is combining some quirk with some sophistication and not just going for the punchline all the time. Bingo. Yep. So, all right. Well, I did hear, if you want to know, I did Google uh, a Deep South uh, 
greeting and farewell. Okay. And I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, but I'll put on my deep, deep South accent. Cool. A That's the greeting? That's the goodbye. I thought the goodbye was a ha 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 ha